Welcome to Worldview from WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. A recent story from Italy piqued our interest. Last year, Italy had 5,000 cases of measles. The government passed a bill requiring mandatory vaccinations. But then a new coalition government with the Five Star Movement and the League came into power. They said they'd do away with the law and are pursuing legislation to do that. Parents sending their children back to school don't know what to do. A recent headline said confusion reigns in Italy over child vaccines. Roberto Barini is a professor of microbiology and virology at Vita Salute San Rafael University in Milan, and he spoke with the BBC about the controversy yesterday. Well, unfortunately, in Italy, we had a very low coverage for measles uh, with vaccinations for a very long time. So a lot of children have not been vaccinated. A lot of children did grow up. And so we have a pretty big uh, population of individuals which are susceptible to measles. And we had an epidemic that was very bad, thousands of cases and uh, six people who died of measles. And this is not acceptable for a developed country with a good health system as Italy is for sure. Is the problem growing worse? Well, the problem was going worse for a long time because we had declining coverage with vaccination since uh, 2006. And uh, then with uh, more information, with a law that made vaccination compulsory, the trend uh, actually inverted because we had a sudden rise of uh, coverage in the last year. But unfortunately, now our current government is discussing if to modify this law, which is, uh, by the way, working very well. Why do you think uh, there has been such a backlash against uh, vaccination then? Well, I think that the most important factor is the fact that people just forget how bad the diseases are. And there is also a, a very, let's say, underestimation of how much, for example, measles is dangerous. And then finally, anti-vaxxers are spreading fear in a very efficient way. And it's easy to spread the fear to scare off parents. And it's difficult then to you know, cool them down. So we are facing this because, uh, in my opinion, the government didn't do too much in the last, uh, let's say, 15 years. It has become something of a popular political cause, has it not, to oppose vaccination? Yeah, that was a very late effect because, you know, in the constituency of the two parties that now are are leading Italy, which is uh, La Lega and the Movimento Cinque Stelle, a part of their constituency for sure is uh, against the compulsory vaccination. They call themselves free vax, which doesn't mean anything, but, you know, this is the name they gave to themselves. But I do hope that, you know, the most reasonable part of these two parties will prevail. So let's wait for the facts uh, that will come in autumn, because they say a lot of words, and words have been a little bit scary, but I prefer to judge on the facts. That's Roberto Burioni, a professor of microbiology in Italy, talking about the confusion over their vaccine requirements there. And Italy is not alone with confusion over requirements in Europe. Europe uh, is seeing right now a big measles outbreak, 41,000 cases so far this year. They just had over five. They had just over five thousand two years ago. So that's it's quadrupled or something. And uh, Europe has pretty loose requirements on vaccination. In a 2010 survey of European states, 15 had no mandatory vaccinations, and 14 countries had at least one required vaccine, usually polio. 
This got us to thinking about what happens with U.S. requirements, and we're going to talk about that now with Diane Peterson, Associate Director for Immunization Projects at the Immunization Action Coalition. Thanks for joining us, Diane. Thanks. It's my pleasure to be here. I was surprised when I went to the CDC website and I looked at a grid of all 50 states and it had a wide variety of exemption, um, <laughs> different exemptions that all 50 states have. There's a complicated mosaic going out here in the U.S. Could you explain what's going on? Sure. The um, immunization requirements for children that are going into childcare or into schools and sometimes into colleges are all decided by states. So that's why you saw, you know, a, a lot of variation among among the states. We don't have a federal policy. We have state-directed policies. All 50 states do require measles vaccination as well as many others. However, the um, exemptions that there is permitted under those laws do vary. Every state allows for a medical reason for a child that cannot receive the vaccine because of those those medical reasons. And then uh, most states allow a religious exemption, um, except for three, Mississippi, West Virginia, and California. And 19 of those states also allow for a personal belief exemption. So, uh, yeah, there is a lot of variation with exemptions. I got to ask a question about why why not a federal requirement? If health is a human right and we are all in, in agreement of this, why can't we have a, a uniform project on this? Because these diseases do not know borders. This is not a, uh, you know, it doesn't seem like a really state-oriented issue. Right, but that's just always been um, the the way these va- these requirements have been implemented, going way back to the days when smallpox was a, a requirement, and that was, again, that was by a state. People are surprised, too, that um, people coming into the country uh, either as an immigrant or a refugee, are not required by the United States to have vaccinations, nor are you and I if we travel out of the country and then come back. Uh, so that's, that's, that's disturbing in the fact that most uh, of the new cases of measles that we see in this country are actually brought in by exposure in other countries like Italy. Um, where they're having a major outbreak of disease. And so Europe has 41,000 cases just so far this year. It's so it's very likely that people going in or out could, could get exposed. It's very likely, yes. Now, uh, it, is there any uh, movement to kind of create a uniform recommendation for states that would would kind of cover everybody? Do, do you go out there and do something like that? What, what's your job like? Well, one of the things that I do is watch what's happening. You mentioned, or, or um, maybe it was Roberto mentioned, anti-vaccine activists that are working in political arenas. And that's happening in, in our country, too. Um, parents that believe that vaccines might cause harm or they're not necessary because these diseases just aren't around anymore. And they're really looking to try to liberalize the ability of a parent not to um, 
have their child vaccinated in order to go to school or to child care. And that's usually done by these exemptions that I mentioned, uh, those for personal reasons. Um, and I, I understand now that in Italy, they're looking at not requiring parents to get a physician signature on an exemption, but just taking the parent's word, both for, I guess, an exemption or just the child's record. Right. And I mean, that opens up a whole host of issues, I guess, that are, that go beyond people who don't believe in vaccinations. It goes goes on to people who just are too lazy to get vaccinations. Yeah, well, it's it's they're they're well-meaning parents and you know that we un- understand and we we fully support parents always want to do the right things for their children. But sometimes they may think that their child got vaccinated against measles as an infant, but it's it's confusing. And I'm sure that the doctor on, that's going to be talking uh, shortly will 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 uh, confirm that. But for example, in the past, we used to call rubella German measles, and what we call measles today was called red measles or hard measles, and that's confusing in parents' minds. Well, I know he got a shot, but you know which one was it? Um, so that's where we feel that it's most important that that record, that documentation, be something that is supported by good, accurate medical records. And obviously, we feel that adults and parents should try to track these as best they can, but it's really uh, the healthcare provider that has the ultimate record of what vaccines were, in fact, given. You mentioned just a moment ago that that, that some people have uh, these or some states have personal exemptions. Uh, How many states have that? I mean, that's the the red flag to you? It it is. Um, There's 19 states that, that do allow for a personal belief, conscientious belief, philosophical belief. It's given a lot of different terms. And some of the, the activity that's happened in the last few years to try to strengthen that, we're not saying to take it away, but California actually did after their major outbreaks. But at least if you do have that type of a exemption, it should be something that you get after a conversation with a healthcare provider about the risks and the benefits of the decision that you're about to make. Uh, so that you do understand it. Because parents can sometimes take that just out of a matter of convenience because they've lost the record or they just moved into the state and they didn't bring it with and and then maybe never get around to getting their child vaccinated. So it really shouldn't be easier to get a child into school with an exemption than it is to actually take the child in for that necessary vaccination. I'm talking with Diane Peterson. She's Associate Director for Immunization Projects at the Immunization Action Coalition. We're talking about how different states have different requirements for immunization. And we want to take some phone calls. And uh, the thing we'd like to know is how far do you think governments should go to require people to get vaccines? The number to call is 312 923 9239 312 923 
888-900-9239. And we want to broaden out the discussion uh, some now with Kelly McKenna. She is Manager for Immunization Initiatives at EverThrive Illinois. Thanks for joining us, Kelly. Thank you for having me. Can you give us the update on Illinois? Illinois has a more straightforward immunization uh, situation uh, requirements than sure, a lot of somewhat. states. So um, we, have, we allow two exemptions in Illinois. So you have your medical exemptions, which Diane talked about. And then we also do allow for religious exemptions in Illinois. We are not one of the states that allows for the philosophical exemptions. Uh, starting during the 2016-2017 school year, uh, we in Illinois, there was a legislation that was passed that created a religious exemption form. And this form has to be taken to, uh, to your medical provider. And you'll go through the standard physical exam. And then you'll also talk through with the provider which um, – vaccines you're deciding to exempt from. You don't have to exempt from all of them, but sometimes people pick and choose. And then the provider signs off on that form. Now, they're not signing off that they're legitimizing your religious viewpoints. What they are signing off on is saying that as a provider, they had that consultation with you. They talked about the importance of vaccinations and the risks of not getting vaccinated. And then they're signing off that that, that, that conversation happened. That form would then be filed with your, uh, with your uh, local school district. Is there a um, what's the logic behind the form if if you want to you know say I don't want one or two vaccinations? Mm-hmm. How could you religiously not want one or two vaccinations? Isn't it? Wouldn't it be a more you, you would either not want them all or you would want. Uh, you know, all of them. You would think it would be standard, but there is some variance. I think one thing to remember with this example, but also looking back to the Italy example, is that documentation is really practical. If you had some sort of an outbreak situation, it's really important to be able to figure out which um, which students are vaccinated and which students are not vaccinated. That allows for some for the emergency preparedness and the emergency response teams to be able to have a really effective efficient and effective response. If you don't know which students are vaccinated or not, or there's some confusion there, that can delay life-saving interventions. And what are the vaccination rates here in Illinois? Yeah, so if we look at the school rates for the state of Illinois, it's above 97%. So that's something to really important to remember is that most parents vaccinate and most parents vaccinate on time. There's a really small but certainly loud minority of parents that choose not to, but the majority of parents in the state of Illinois are vaccinating. And um, other states, Diane, are are the numbers, I've seen some fluctuation there. Yes, there is some fluctuation, but generally, as Kelly said, most states do have fairly high levels of, um, uh, of immunization against these diseases. However, the real concern is there are pockets, um, in this, within the state or within the city. Uh, or within the school where there's higher rates of unvaccinated children. And that's where it's very efficient where the vaccine or the measles virus can be introduced into those pockets and then spread from there. And there was we we saw some information from a data specialist in Italy who uh, demonstrated this he he there was a there, the areas where there were less vaccinations there were measles outbreaks and uh, you know it was pretty straightforward yep not surprising um 
I want to talk now with Dr. Santana Wheat. She's a member of the Illinois Academy of Family Physicians. She's a doctor for Erie Family Health Centers. Uh, thanks for joining us, Tina Wheat. Thank you for having me. Uh, you know, you, how, what does it look like on the ground floor for um, people who are going to get vaccinations, young people who are uh, bringing their children in? Um, how many are they getting? What, are they enthusiastic about this? Um, I would say it depends on what group you're talking about. So I take care of all ages of patients. Um, We generally focus on children because we know that they're generally covered by insurance or covered by public funding and they're easier to get. And so there's a lot more vaccination for those families. Um, We start at birth. We start maybe on the first day that the baby is born and give them their first vaccine and start having that conversation before they even leave the hospital. So we start at birth, we go two months, four months, six months, one year, again, vaccines at 15 months and 18 months, and then there's a break, and then there's four years old, and then we don't see it again until adolescence. Then there's also the flu shot. The standard ones are easier to get um, and are more likely to be gotten by most of my patients. Have you ever had somebody turn you down and say, well, I don't want vaccinations for my child because of religious or the medical reasons. I imagine some children are getting treated for cancer and things like that. They can't have vaccinations. We have some families that decline at the beginning. And often I hear, oh, I'm just not ready for my child to be vaccinated. And we do talk about those risks of not just their children, but everyone else that's in the waiting room, everyone else that they see at the grocery store and any plane that they might get on. Um, We also get a little bit of, oh, I'm not going to send my child to daycare or to school, and so I don't have to worry about that. Um, And we try to dissuade that notion. Um, And then I always tell anyone that says to me, I don't want to vaccinate that, well, I'm not recommending anything for you that I wouldn't recommend for my own family. My children are fully vaccinated. My husband's fully vaccinated. I encourage my mother to get vaccinated. It's it's so important. Um, but fortunately, I don't feel like I see a whole lot of families that are saying no. Now, you were telling me before the break um, that you, when you were traveling with your young child to Europe, you vaccinated early. You, you didn't want um, transmissions from Europe to, to, to get in there. Yeah. So when I um, – my oldest right now, when she was just one years old, we had planned a trip to Aruba, and there's a lot of European travelers that go there as well. And so there is a recommendation that if you're going to travel and be exposed to folks who are unvaccinated, that you should get your vaccines a little bit early. So she actually got her measles, mumps, rubella vaccines at one year and 15 months instead of the standard one year and four years because I wanted to make sure that she was okay. I'm talking with Dr. Santina Wheat, Kelly McKenna, and Diane Peterson about immunizations and the requirements that governments have to get people vaccined. Uh, I will have some phone calls after this. And the number to call once again is 312-923-9239. And we want to know how far you think government should go to get people to to require vaccinations in people. I'm Jerome McDonald. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ.
This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonnell. We're talking today about vaccination. We've been talking about the big measles outbreak in Europe, 41,000 cases so far this year. Europe has pretty loose requirements on vaccination. We were talking about what are the requirements in the U.S., and there are a variety of requirements among states. And we've been asking people how far they think the government should go to require people to get vaccinations. And we're taking a few phone calls at 312. 923-9239 and let's take a phone call from Morning. You're on WBEZ. Hi, thanks for having me. Uh, what's your question? So, I am the relative of a parent who does not vaccinate her children. Um, some of her concerns, most of her concerns come from the fact that a lot of the pharmaceutical companies um, uh include things, heavy metals, uh, including aluminum, which is known to contribute to Alzheimer's, um, which is for a baby would be especially, especially damaging. Um, I've watched FDA hearings uh, with her um, and have seen the, the approval process in which they say, have you tested this? Have you tested this? Have you done experiments on this? And they say, no, no, no. Um, so I think that if the government wants to try to implement uh, vaccinations, they need to do a better job of ensuring that um, the vaccines aren't damaging in other ways. All right. So do you try to, are you trying to persuade your relative to vaccinate their children? No, I'm not. I think that it's a valid point. All right. Well, let's get some reaction. Um, Kelly McKenna. Yeah, absolutely. So vaccines are one of the most studied um, medical interventions ever. Um, there's for several years prior to a vaccine even being able to come to the market, there's so many trials that have to take place in terms of safety as well as efficacy. And then once a vaccine comes to the market, it continues to be studied um, vigorously in order to make sure that there are no adverse reactions. So you mentioned aluminum, so we can talk a little bit about that. Um, so aluminum is used as an adjuvant, so that's an ingredient that really helps to improve your immune system's response. But aluminum is the most common metal found in nature. So you'll actually also see it in breast milk and in infant formula. It's not something that can be avoided, but the levels in vaccines are, are safe and um, help make the vaccine actually more effective. Now, there was a study 10 years ago in The Lancet, I believe mm -hmm. it was, that came out and, and identified this as something that wasn't safe, and there was a big controversy about that? Yeah, absolutely. So is, is that the... Um the 1998 study yeah, that we were referencing? Yeah, I think so. Okay, so in 1998, there was a study that went out in The Lancet. Um, it was a researcher in the United Kingdom who um, had tried to incorrectly make a link between vaccines and autism. And um, there's been many studies that have done, been done since then that have um, not shown that same link. And they've looked at millions of, uh, and thousands of children and, and not been able to show the, the same link. And the study was actually retracted and proven to um, have there were some ethical issues in terms of falsifying data and the the researcher lost his his medical license over over this study but um, now actually lives in Texas and um, is, a, is a general member of the population is no longer a, a practicing physician uh, you know it's hard to believe that this th that particular uh, link has mm -hmm. been so talked about and mm -hmm. many many people talk about it including 
uh, a presidential candidate in the last election who actually won the election brought it up in a debate. Here is uh, now President Trump in a debate in the run-up to the presidential election. Just the other day, two years old, two and a half years old, a child, a beautiful child, went to have the vaccine and came back and a week later got a tremendous fever, got very, very sick, now is autistic. Uh, what it had, this is um, populism in the United States. We were heard, hearing about it in Italy, and here it is in the United States. Um, is there evidence that, you know, you get a shot, you come home, you have autism? There absolutely is not. It's unfortunate in timing that often when we're able to identify autism, it's around the same time that these patients are getting their vaccines. Usually, though, if you look at the child and you go back through the history, you're actually able to see signs of it before that vaccine happened. But for families that really think this is the cause, it was, I got that vaccine and then the diagnosis was made. But sometimes that's just the same visit or within the same couple of months. And as was just mentioned, we know that that study wasn't true, that the data was falsified. Mm -hmm. So we really try to stress that with families when they're worried about this. Um, Diane Peterson, do you want to weigh in on this? Sure, I do. Um, I would say, too, that there have been multiple studies uh, conducted since that original study back in 98 to show no relationship between vaccines and an in particular, the measles, mumps, rubella vaccine, and the development of autism. Um, I know that that's that's very concerning with parents. And and as Kelly mentioned, I mean the or a doctor Wheat, I believe that the the symptoms, um, the the beginning of autistic behavior, some many times is occurs before the vaccines, but it may not be recognized. Clearly, and I would say, with regard to the ingredients, that yes, there are uh, a lot of ingredients. Every in a vaccine, everyone is there for a particular purpose, and they are all minuscule and absolutely necessary for the vaccine to do its job. And people need to remember that the the um, the effect, the harmful effects of some of these is all dependent on the dose that is given. And in fact, there was a, a contest a few years ago with a radio station uh, about drinking water, and the woman who won actually died from overdosing on water. She drank, I don't know how much it was. So it's all it's all dependent on the dose that the person is exposed to. Diane Peterson is with the Immunization Action Coalition. We're taking a few phone calls and talking about vaccination and what governments should require for vaccination. And let's talk to Darcy. Darcy, you're on WBEZ. Hi, thanks for taking my call. Um, I just uh, was... I, I was affected by not being immune, well, not being immunized, but by, affected by getting some of the diseases as an adult. And I think people forget that the adults can have dramatic consequences too. So I was in uh, living abroad when I had my first child, and I contracted chickenpox while I was pregnant, which is unusual. But you can lose your child because of it. It's very, very serious. Um, and then later on uh, in, in the United States, I contracted whooping cough because there was a there was sort of an outbreak of whooping cough. I believe I was vaccinated for it, but I was vaccinated in the 60s, and there was some question as to the length of the. Um, there's a period where they used a different kind of vaccine, and I think there's some question as to how 
you know, if adults should get boosters or, or something during that time. But in the end, I got it. And it's really dramatic. It's not something that we should play with. I mean, that was, I was sick for an entire, uh, an entire uh, winter and continue to sort of have, you know, feelings about it, like respiratory feeling about it. So um, it's nothing to play with. Um, thanks. Yeah. Th- thanks for your call, Darcy. It, I, I was on the CDC website and going over, they catalog the people who have died from not being immunized. And they have a, it, it is a long categorization. There, there mm-hmm. are people dying from multiple things that, that were unnecessary. Um, we're going to take another phone call. Joan is in Evanston. Joan, you're on WBEZ. Hi. Thanks for taking my call. And thanks to the panel who you have. They're very, very informative. Um, I'm a pediatric nurse now since 1985, and I worked for several years in um, a clinic uh, near Evanston at the border. And we immunized all children without regard to ability to pay. And these families were very grateful. I have taken care of personally on the infectious disease floor at the old children's, which is now Lurie, of a child who had meningitis. Mm-hmm. And the meningitis was caused because her parents did not only, not want vaccines, but they didn't want a tuberculosis test. And she was severely brain damaged from TB meningitis. So I think we have to also say that the government needs to regulate not only vaccines for children and adults who take care of children, like the pertussis, the woman who just commented on pertussis. Um, Any caregiver in a daycare center or anyone that works directly with children needs to be vaccinated for pertussis or they're the vector. They're going to give the disease to the child. I think it should be mandated, private and public schools. I I truly, I have to say, I don't believe in any religious, philosophical, any kind of exemption. I think it's all a bunch of fooey, personally. I think where lives are at stake, you cannot you cannot endanger the life of another person because of your beliefs. I think it's wrong. Um, it is interesting how religious exemption trumps public health here. Uh, it, yeah, I know the government is very reluctant to mess with religious exemptions, uh, religious beliefs. Um, it took the, I read uh, uh, some material about how long it took the government to stop polygamy in the Mormon faith. It took decades of court cases. And um, I guess... Th- I don't know, should there be a better effort at that is the question I have. Um, What do you think, Diane? Well, a lot of people have studied that issue, and it's an interesting one. There really is no organized uh, religion that has as part of its practices or tenets a, a clear and outright opposition to vaccines, even with Christian scientists. Uh, the founder of the church said during the smallpox vaccination uh, wave that her, the parishioners should get the vaccine, but um, but people feel that the erroneously that there are reasons not uh, uh, religious reasons not to be vaccinated, or sometimes courts have ruled too that it does not have to be an organized religion; it could be a personal almost a personal belief uh, in some spiritual whatever that says not to vaccinate. So I think part of the answer to that is um, what Kelly has talked about with their putting some 
um, parameters around that religious exemption, that there still be a requirement that the individual talk this over with their physician um, and and maybe sign some statements that they do understand the ramifications both to their child and to the children around that child. We're going to try to sneak in one more call. Uh, Brendan is on WBEZ. Hey, Brendan. Hi, guys. Thanks for the conversation. It's a, very much appreciated. So this is a gray area. There's, that's where it's controversial, um, and you guys have covered a lot of space. Um, I guess the, the the short version would be we're, last year the Vaccine Injury Compensation Program, which is funded by a 75-cent tax that we all pay on every vaccine given, that, that fund paid out $252 million last year to 700 and some victims that had not just redness or swelling, but they had traumatic neurological injuries or traumatic anaphylaxis, so traumatic immune system or traumatic brain injuries from vaccines, and nobody's studying why, because we, the people uh, that are, are funding it, the government's not paying that bill and the pharmaceutical companies aren't paying that bill. There was a reference earlier to the aluminum that how safe it is. Aluminum is safe when we ingest it, when we eat it. And that's the studies that have been done to show its safety were given, rats were given, they were ingesting the vaccine and then they chest tested the blood right. of aluminum, which, which was, a, which was equal, equal. When you inject it, the absorption rate is 60%, not the 0.3%. All right. All right. We're going to get a reaction here. And um, uh, Kelly, do you want to react to some of what uh, Brendan was saying there? Yeah, absolutely. So obviously, there there are many concerns and many different uh, viewpoints around this. But I think we go back to the the many studies that have been done on millions of of people to show that vaccines are safe and they're effective, and um, really the the science and and the medical community are are on the side of of vaccine safety and vaccine efficacy. And I wanted to circle back to a couple of points that were made by the. Um, earlier callers that vaccines are important throughout the lifespan and that caregivers and and folks that take care of people, whether that be in a formal setting like a daycare or a school, or that be in a long-term care facility or a hospital, it's really important that that those people are vaccinated as well to prevent the spread of disease. Diane, do you have some thoughts about uh, what Brandon was saying there? Well, I would say, too, that the compensation program is based on the people that are um, compensated are people whose um, event occurred on as, as um, according outlined in a table of, comp, of, of um, compensatory events. So it doesn't necessarily mean there's proof that the the vaccine caused this specific event, but if it had occurred within 48 hours of having received the vaccine, then it's an automatic compensation. Um, and again, I, I want to follow up with what Kelly said. I mean, there are many, once vaccines are licensed, there continue to be uh, rigorous studies and monitoring of of any type of event that occurs, whether it's caused by the vaccine or not. Diane Peterson is Associate Director for Immunization Projects at the Immunization Action Coalition. Kelly McKenna is Manager for Immunization Initiatives at Ever Thrive Illinois. And Dr. Santana Wheat is a member of the Illinois Academy of Family Physicians. She's also a doctor for Erie Family Health Centers. Thank you all for joining us and talking about vaccinations and some of the confusion out there about vaccinations. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you.
Thank you, Jerome. Coming up after the break, we will have a conversation about plastic and getting it uh, getting it out of the environment. I'm Jerome McDonald. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. It's getting hard to keep track of everything that's happening in the movement to get rid of plastic straws. Globally, Scotland, Vancouver, and Taiwan all have bans. So does Seattle. Lots of companies are now phasing out plastic straws like IKEA, Alaska Airlines, and just last month, Starbucks. Momentum to get rid of plastic straws came from the Stop Sucking campaign started by the organization Lonely Whale. We have the two co-founders of Lonely Whale with us. Uh, Dune Ives is here. She's executive director of Lonely Whale. Good to meet you. Hi, thanks for having me on. And so's actor Adrian Grenier, who you know from the TV series Entourage. He is a co-founder of Lonely Whale, and he is a UN Goodwill Ambassador for the Environment. Thanks for joining us, Adrian. Thanks for having me. Well, how did this thing get started, Adrian? Why did you want to do this thing with um, with plastic straws? Well, uh, for anybody who's seen Entourage, uh, I am Aquaman. <laughs> so, of course, I had to do something for the oceans in my real life. Um, but seriously, folks, uh, I've been doing environmental work for a long time, and I saw that there was a gap in the market. There was a lack of effort for the world's oceans. Because I think uh, the oceans are so vast and abstract and don't relate to our everyday experience that we tend to forget them. So I wanted to uh, create an organization that brought people closer to the world's oceans as a way to inspire empathy and action to heal the world's oceans from the problems that they face. Uh, Dune, what did the um, ideas about straws initially sound like to you or where did they come from? Well, when we looked at all of the ocean health threats that were out there as a way to, you know, kind of gravitate towards something that we could use to pull people closer to the world's ocean and and to really create care and empathy for ocean and its animals, we landed on plastic pollution because we feel like it's solvable, ultimately. And it's also something that connects every single one of us every single day that we can't actually go to the grocery store or live our lives without coming into contact with single-use plastic. But it's a really big issue. I mean, we're seeing you know, uh, between 8 and 12 million metric tons of new plastic entering the ocean every year. And so it's hard to know where to start. And when you look at all the single-use plastic items out there, there's only one, which is the straw, for which there's a readily available and immediate solution, which is to refuse one or just don't offer one. Um, so, the, But the idea didn't come necessarily from our team. Honestly, it came from was spending time with Adrian, and every time we went to a restaurant together, he kept saying, no straw, no straw, no thank you, no straw. And I kept wondering, like, what is this thing with the straw? And and come to find out, you know, what we learned very quickly is that there are 500 million of them used in the United States alone every single day. None of them are recyclable. And so our team kind of pre- pretty quickly gravitated towards, this is a conversation starter, because when you have a straw in your drink, you're with people. And you can talk to each other about plastic, and you can talk to each other about your decisions. And isn't this a great way to build community around this big ocean threat and start working together towards creating a, a solution that works for all of us on this planet? Now, Adrian, you were uh, you talked it to the people at Starbucks. You talked to their shareholders meeting about this. 
and, and made a pitch, uh, what was your best argument? Did you have a, a, a go-to moment where you that I, I got him on this one? Well, look, part of our strategy is not only inspiring consumers to demand lifestyle change and wanting uh, to, to live a better life and wanting better products that don't pollute their planet, um, but it's also about respecting and appreciating and being sensitive to uh, the business concerns because, uh, you know, of course, companies, businesses, they have to deal with not only materials but customer uh, sentiment and a host of other things. So one thing that we made sure of is we wanted to reach out to business communities and talk to co- businesses and figure out a way that they can actually move forward um, in a positive way, not only for the bottom line, but also for customers. And Starbucks, of course, we, we actually started our Stop Sucking campaign, by the way, hashtag Stop Sucking on single-use plastic straws. Uh, we started the campaign in Seattle, and we had an overwhelming amount of support from local restaurants and businesses, but the one glaring uh, company that did not participate was Starbucks. So it was, uh, for us, something that we needed to make sure uh, got done, uh, but also because Starbucks has such a global impact. And if Starbucks can make a change, it proves that businesses around the world can make changes no matter how big they are. And, if, and, and of course, the bigger you are, the, the bigger your impact, both negative if you're not doing the right thing, but also positive if you make changes. So what was your best line to the Starbucks shareholders? Well, look, the, the single-use plastic straw, first of all, um, is straws are not recyclable. Uh, they fall through all of the sorting machines at recycling facilities. So you can't recycle them at all. At best, they end up in a landfill. Worse, they end up in the ocean. And they already are a microplastic. There's a lot of talk, talk about microplastics. Straws start out as a small piece of plastic, a microplastic. Um, so the argument is we got to get rid of these because they enter the ocean, because they, they are a microplastic, and because fish are eating them and they're entering our food chain, which ultimately affect our health. Do you have some... Uh, psychology about the requirement issue because I mean Seattle went ahead and men banned plastic straws is is that a the best way to go you work with businesses and are trying to get uh, other businesses like McDonald's uh, to ban plastic straws and they're banning them in some countries uh, is, is there a better best way to do this um, Dune do you have some thoughts on that yeah our, our philosophy at Lonely Well is the market needs to lead the way Oftentimes, policy will follow suit, which is what happened in Seattle. There was such an overwhelming response from sports teams and from the airport and local influencers that it made it easy for them to lift the exclusion to the director's rule that was already on the books. But we've we've recently launched a campaign with Bacardi to eliminate a billion straws by the year 2020, and that's engaging in a voluntary capacity with mixologists all over the world to choose an alternative or to choose no straw. And, and for us, that's, that's really powerful because when you see mixologists and you see restaurateurs and hoteliers and airlines like Alaska Airlines making a voluntary choice to improve their environmental bottom line and ultimately their financial bottom line as well, then policy might follow suit. But without the market really driving this, 
then it doesn't make much sense for policy. So you're seeing policy change happening all over the world. And in large part, it's because this straw issue is was a very, it's very timely. I think it's something that helps people feel really powerful, like they can make a difference on something that's such a big, gigantic issue, which is plastic pollution. And it helps to build more momentum and really galvanize support across large communities. But fundamentally, the market has to be the one that that chooses whether or not they're going to move forward with us. And and if I could just add, uh, policy should reflect public sentiment, but should also help businesses overall. They should level the playing field so that the effort to help the environment is amortized across all businesses. Right now, the the businesses and the companies that are uh, leading the charge are, are taking the undue burden of change, while all the other companies who are just working under business as usual um, aren't doing their part. So what these policies do is force the entire market to step up to the plate and do their part. How do you move the conversation beyond straws to all the other plastic stuff we are dealing with? Yes. <laughs> oh, so it, glad you asked. <laughs> well, I, I'll I'll start, Adrian, and I would love for you to add in. It, it actually happens really naturally. So I'll give you a couple of examples. We worked with the Tom Douglas Restaurant Group in Seattle and trained all of their managers and their staff. And somebody raised their hand during the straw training program and said, okay, yeah, 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 I get the straw. But what I'm really curious about is why do we have oysters and shellfish that come to us in plastic bags that aren't recyclable? Like exactly the point. And so, and so we're seeing that conversation naturally come forward in these conversations. Bacardi is looking at reducing plastic across operations and a supply chain, not just stopping at the straw, but going further. And that's really the kind of change that we want to see within these companies. Adrian, do you want to add yeah. as well? Well, straws are a gateway plastic. Uh, they're an opportunity for people to enter the conversation, not be overwhelmed. When you think about the 10 million tons of plastic, that's one garbage truck full of plastic entering the ocean every minute. When you think about that, it's overwhelming and people shut down and turn off. But if you give them an opportunity to step into the conversation with something like the single-use plastic straw, suddenly they themselves start to ask questions. Well, what about the, the lid and the cup and the plastic bags? So we've really invited people into this conversation without overwhelming them. And really, you know, people congratulate us on helping in Seattle and Starbucks and all the work we've been doing targeting uh, the elimination of 8 billion straws by 2020. But I always say this is just one big giant baby step because we still have 8 million tons of plastic every year to keep out of the ocean and hopefully ultimately respect its value and utilize it back into the market through circular economies or upcycling or at, 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 you know, at the least recycling. Um, it, are there exemptions for the straw thing that you're uh, curious about? I know that disabled people um, kind of kicked up a fuss about this. Did this get more complicated than you imagined when you started campaigning on this? You know, when we, I, I don't think change is easy for anyone. So I'm a psychologist by training and, and worked on change management for quite a long time. And change is never easy at the individual level, at the business level, at the community level. And so I think change is always hard because there's it brings uncertainty and unknowns. Um, so I think it's really natural for even something as simple as a straw to be really complicated. 
Um, when we started our straw campaign, we reached out to the disability community, to specific individuals, and really tried to understand what their needs were and what would work and not work for them. So I think what was surprising to us is that some of those folks that we reached out to early on then also became the largest critics of the movement. And what we're seeing with the policy conversations at each of the cities that we're helping to inform and, you know, we'll go and testify as part of the hearings on the policy is that exemptions are being built in. And and now, thankfully, they're working very closely with the disability community to make sure that reducing plastic pollution doesn't create an undue burden on, on the individual person. We have to find a way to be able to create solutions that work for everyone and for the planet. Um, and also recognize that we do have a plastic pollution crisis on our hands. And it's something that we all have to lean into and we're going to have to figure out how to solve together. I want to do a shout out to the people who've been working in the Chicago area. The Shed the Straw campaign by the Shed Aquarium has been doing great work. And uh, there's also been some great work done by the Alliance for the Great Lakes here. The Great Lakes get a lot of plastic pollution and they have uh, a lot of uh, efforts to clean beaches and to stop using straws and plastics at their website at greatlakes.org. I want to thank you both for joining us and for all the work that you've been doing on uh, eliminating straws. Do Knives is executive director of Lonely Whale and actor Adrian Grenier, who you know from the series Entourage, is a co-founder of Lonely Whale and a UN Goodwill Ambassador for the Environment. Keep Goodwill Ambassadoring there, Adrian. Good luck. Thank you. Thank you. Tomorrow on Worldview, we'll look back and talk about a piece of history from 1968 in Mexico where there was a massacre of students uh, and who were protesting in the main square in Mexico. And we'll be talking about the Clate Loco massacre tomorrow on Worldview. Hope you can join us. Worldview is produced by Steve Bynum and Julian Haida. And thanks very much to Dazmin Hussein and Viviana Garcia Blanco for producing today. I'm Jerome McDonald. You've been listening to Worldview on WBEZ. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR.